Listener Production. Hyperbole has become so commonplace in our culture that statements about people's achievements can feel really meaningless. But it is difficult to overstate the contribution of Kate Jenkins, who has changed Australian workplaces forever during her seven-year term as Sex Discrimination Commissioner. Kate Jenkins delivered the landmark Respect at Work report, which made a series of recommendations that laws be changed around workplace sexual harassment. Originally released in 2020, that report initially sat on the desk of then Attorney General Christian Porter for over a year before the allegations of Brittany Higgins and others forced the issue back onto the political agenda. It has since been made law in full. Kate Jenkins has been at the centre of this fight for reform and for fairness for seven years now, and she joined me in her final week in the job. My name is Jamila Rizzi, and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where Helen Smith and I recommend what to watch, see, eat, do and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with outgoing Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins. Hey Jenkins, welcome to the Weekend Briefing. Thank you very much, Jamila. Now, by the time people hear this, your term as Sex Discrimination Commissioner will have wrapped up, but I am stealing minutes of your time in what is the final week. How does it feel? I imagine there are some mixed emotions. Mixed emotions is a perfect answer. I'm happy and sad all simultaneously. Really, uh, I felt so privileged to be in this role. It's been seven years. It's been both, you know, short and long. I feel like it's flown by, but I also feel like a lot has happened in that time. And I'm really pleased to see some real changes, particularly in workplaces and some reform that I think will have a long impact. So that makes me really happy and pleased. Um, And then I'm sad because I've loved this role. I've loved the opportunities I've had, the people I've met, you know, and the the ability to take people's stories and then sort of use that to take it to other people who might be in positions of power to ask for change and to be, you know, the person who joins those things up. Um, It's been a great honour. So that's why I'm sad. Yeah. Okay. We're going to get into a whole lot of those achievements during this chat, but I want to start by heading back to the beginning. When did you hear about the job or how did you hear about the job? And what made you think, I'd be good at that? I first heard about the job in about 1986. So okay, that's I, a while ago. Yeah. Wasn't, it wasn't at that point. I mean, my, my brain explodes to think that I got to hold the job. Um, but when I was at university, so the Sex Discrimination Act, a little history lesson, started in 1984. And I was in year 11 at school at that point. Um, at that point, you know, I had a really strong sense of justice and feminism, actually, and women's rights. That hasn't changed. Uh, but when I started at university, I studied law and arts. I um, It was the start of discrimination law. It was the first time wow. feminist legal theory had been taught. And I, as well as doing all my corporate law subjects, loved those subjects. And 
so at that time, I think at that time, maybe Quentin Bryce was the sex discrimination commissioner and really sort of quite well, well, in my world, well known because I was a lawyer following that. And so I have actually, the, the first commissioner was Pam O'Neill. I don't know her and I actually, if she's listening, wherever she is, I'm dying to meet her um, because I've never met her. But ever since, you know, Quentin Bryce and Sue Walpole and um, Susan Halliday and Prue Goward, Liz Broderick, all of those different commissioners, I've always been in a professional role that has involved discrimination, sex discrimination act and watching how that worked in practice. So I always knew that people held this role over my professional career because I was an employment lawyer for 20 years and I was one of the earliest who ran cases and gave advice on the Sex Discrimination Act and all the discrimination laws. Um, And only because people have just recently asked, I realised over that time, people did used to say to me, you know, you should become the Sex Discrimination Commissioner. But my little brain just couldn't imagine that I would be in that role. Um, I was just doing the work that I was doing that I was trained to do. Um, So whilst it was raised, I never realistically thought it would be a thing. Um, And then about 10 years ago, I became the Victorian Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commissioner. And when that came about, again, I wasn't thinking I would go there, but I realised all my experience was the perfect combination for, you know, sort of the government, the laws, the complaint management, education. They'd been all things I'd been working on. And so in some ways, I had three years there. That was a five-year term, but this role came up before the end of that. And when it came up, again, I think I was too, um, I really was a bit too scared to imagine I could possibly get it because it was sort of one of those jobs that you really, you know, it's, it is literally the only job like it in the country. Um, But I did apply and then I did the interview and I thought I'd done a terrible job. (laughs) So I think I convinced myself all along to manage my disappointment. So when I got it, I was pretty excited. You mentioned earlier that as part of the job, you've listened to a whole lot of people's stories. And I imagine, given the nature of your work, dealing with women who've experienced uh, workplace sexual harassment, as well as people of other genders who have as well, some of those stories are pretty harrowing. And I, I imagine the same was true as a lawyer. How, how do you deal with that as a at a personal level where you've got to advocate for people and advocate for change, but also, I imagine, protect yourself a little bit? One of the great things about the Human Rights Commission is this is core business. So as as a commissioner, every time I've done one of those, um, you know, the projects like the National Enquirer on Workplace Sexual Harassment, we did a review of gymnastics and we heard stories of, you know, of abuse of young people and children. Um, the you know, it's inevitable that you will face vicarious trauma. So you are listening to stories of trauma. You are listening to people are trusting you and sharing their stories. And it's really important we listen to that. But it's also important that we understand that we need to be managing ourselves. If I reflect, though, I have heard so many stories and I feel so honoured that people have shared those stories. And there have been moments, um, I can actually probably think of three moments where I've actually thought I need to sort of, I almost need to stop listening because this is so difficult to hear. And those have all been either child sex abuse or family violence that 
you know, physical violence, uh, but they're not the only ones. Uh, But what I've learned from having those supports is I think my kind of gap between hearing the story, processing and wanting to do, thinking of what I can do about it is quite small. So I think that um, I do make sure that I sit with, listen and really absorb And then my brain works pretty fast on trying to think of how I could constructively. I can't usually help so much. The Human Rights Commission can help an individual. We do have complaint managements. We've got amazing people that deal with complaints and take people through that journey. What my role has been able to do or what I've really focused on is the bigger change. So then when I listen to the collective stories, while each one sounds like it's it's the only story. When I've heard enough, like the Parliament Review, when we did 500 interviews, and there's a point when you're hearing some of these stories at the start where you go, oh, I can see some things going on. Maybe could, we could change this or that. And after you've heard 500, what really needs to be done really emerges pretty clearly. And that's part of, you know, my listening to an individual story and then and then trying to get pretty quickly to what's the systemic change that we could make to both help this person but also to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Do you remember where you were and what you were doing when you first saw a hashtag MeToo starting to trend on Twitter? And I I want to recognise that it's been terminology that's been around for a very long time, but uh, it's more recently that uh, actress Alyssa Milano started tweeting and others jumped yes. on Burke, on board. I do want to recognise that Tarana Burke was yeah. a woman of colour who first started speaking about mm. Me Too. But do you remember that that moment and when you sort of saw it gather momentum? Um, I do remember one particular moment and I'll also pay regards to Tarana Burke. Another um, huge um, privilege in this role has been to meet and get to know her and how she started that movement in 2006. And, you know, that really that um, literally the comfort that she could provide people by saying to someone who'd experienced sexual assault, it happened to me too, and how that, you know, how that came about. Um, The moment I remember was when the reporting of Weinstein first happened. So Alyssa Milano's tweet was a a few days after that. Um, But the reason I remember that is I had been on a holiday with my family overseas and it was October the 5th when the reporting on the New York Times happened. And so I had been in one of those rare moments where there were 14 hours where I was not, you know, I was offline. And so I got off. So what I really remember is at the Telemarine Airport in Melbourne coming out and I can visualise us bringing our luggage out to the front to get picked up by the Uber or whoever. And my phone just was going ding, 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 ding. There were so many messages. And I was like, what has happened? And it was journalists and it was, you know, a whole lot of people saying, have you seen this reporting? And so I remember that because I was like, wow, I've never seen anything like this. So the Me Too I saw happen pretty rapidly over the following two months. But that 5th of October and 
sort of that moment, it was so different to anything before. I think um, my entire career, I've dealt with sexual harassment cases. The Human Rights Commission from 2003, starting with Prue Goward, has been doing sexual harassment surveys. The Human Rights Commission has known that sexual harassment is still a problem, but has the general community? No. Up until, I'd say, 2017, there was very much a view that this is over inflated, people exaggerate it, just take a joke, get along, you know, what's your problem? And so that's what I saw changed and the Me Too hashtag really helped that conversation keep going and I would say it hasn't stopped since then. It's hard to know where to start because we've got a short time together and the list of what you have achieved during your term as Sex Discrimination Commissioner is so incredibly long. I, you know, I could be asking about the work you've done with the Defence Forces and the Australian Federal Police. We could be talking about sporting codes, including golf, cricket, netball, gymnastics, all of them. You've done some incredible work around transgender and gender diverse people in sport. And it frustrates me to set that aside for a moment because I think we do need to focus on on what is going to be the, the headline achievement and what is something that is going to change the experience of people at work for hopefully forever in this country. Uh, which is that Respect at Work inquiry and report. Mm. Can you tell me how that came about and what you found? And folks, I wish you could see the report. It's so thick. I've just asked Kate to summarise it in 20 seconds or something. But. <laughs> um, well, I think there's a, a reason why that's sort of the central because all those other pieces of work are to some degree an industry application wow. of the principles in Respect at Work. So Respect at Work really jumping off that conversation we just had about Weinstein was the result of a of seeking government support to do a national inquiry on workplace sexual harassment in Australia. After the Weinstein sort of reporting and then the global conversation, but particularly in Australia, there was calls for royal commissions and, you know, we need to do something about this. And Kelly O'Dwyer had not long commenced as the Minister for Women. And so at that point, given that I could see that the appetite to find solutions was had changed. Wow. I proposed to her if she would support for us to do a national inquiry and she part funded it. The Human Rights Commission had to fund the rest. Um, but we did an 18-month inquiry. It involved survey of 10,000 people. It involved focus groups right around the country and in regional areas, um, submissions, all the things that a national inquiry would involve. And as a result, the Respect at Work report came up with recommendations around five different areas around data and information collecting, understanding what's going on, around primary prevention, around the legal and regulatory framework, around what uh, workplaces need to be doing differently, and around support, advice and advocacy. And so there were 55 recommendations there. My favourite hashtag was in the March for Justice in uh, March of 2021. There were placards that said, implement the 55. That's all they said, but that was the Respect at Work report. So the, the report was delivered and published in March 2020, and as you know, that was when COVID hit. There was some other stuff happening. Yes. So it really um, then was picked up in 2021 because the conversation about sexual harassment continued in the High Court, at the University of Adelaide, in AMP, in Parliament. It didn't stop, and that's because sexual harassment has continued 
COVID or no COVID, for a long time. You've been working in this space, as you've mentioned, as a, as a lawyer and then as a commissioner in Victoria and then and then in this role. You've been working in this space of sexual harassment for a really long time. During the course of that inquiry, what did you learn? So one of the main things I observed, which has now completely changed, so as you, I think, know, Jamila, um, the previous government and then the new government committed to implementing all 55 and the previous government committed to most of them, um, is that the current system and the way the legal framework worked was that under the Sex Discrimination Act, sexual harassment was unlawful, but the only recourse was if you made a complaint. So my finding was that the whole system put all the burden on the victims of the conduct to basically enforce the law. And what had happened in practice was workplaces weren't dealing with sexual harassment as a work health and safety issue, and they weren't taking actions to prevent sexual harassment. So even now, if I talk to workplaces, I'll say, let's talk about what you do about sexual harassment. They will usually tell me what they do when they get a complaint of it. And that, you know, you don't say, what do you do about fatalities? Well, this is when someone dies, this is what we do. I mean, that's an extreme example. But People haven't really had in their minds psychosocial injuries in the same way as physical injuries. And so the main, um, a couple of things, one is that the focus has been on response and not on prevention and the new laws have shifted that. Another is that it's been on a focus on individual misconduct as if there's a few bad men basically who are doing this, but mostly we're all good and not recognising that it's a systemic issue, that there is reasons why you know, in the legal profession, why a high court judge can do this. So it's not simply the one individual. There's sort of risk factors that exist in mining, in hospitality, a whole range of sectors. And once you start explaining that, like people totally understand if you're a waitress in a bar, you're a much more risk of sexual harassment than me sitting at my computer, you know, doing human rights work. And that's not because there's bad people in one place and good people in the other. The other thing I learned really was the drivers of sexual harassment are power imbalances and the biggest power imbalance still is gender inequality and lack of diversity and also lack of accountability. So those big drivers are important to understand because then if we can work on those, we can reduce the prevalence of sexual harassment. So that's that's kind of a super simplified version of what I found. Soon after that, you were doing another inquiry looking at the conduct of people working in Australia's parliament following the allegations of Brittany Higgins and several others. Um, about their experiences working in that building. I don't know if anyone ever felt like politicians and their staff and the people who occupy Parliament House were immune from what happens in workplaces, unfortunately, all over the country. But I do think there was a sense at that time of people being shocked and outraged that that could happen in a place that's responsible for lawmaking, let's say. When you were going into that inquiry... What did you feel was your responsibility, not just to the people who worked in that building, but to the public? That review was an incredible both privilege and responsibility. I still do think that whilst there are a lot of pieces of work that I've done, 
the work in parliament was really looking not just at a workplace but the workplace that decides how all other workplaces work and the standards for the country. It's the role model. So what I was really pleased about with the parliament work, even though it was a tragic disclosures that brought us to this point, is that all sides of the parliament asked for us to do that review. Now, it's a big deal to expose, you know, open yourself up to an external trusted agency and let people tell their stories to you. And that is what happened. And by doing that, we had the unique insight into this this unique workplace. There was a team of really 20 really talented people who were given an insight into that workplace. And actually, we felt responsible to help them know what they needed to do differently. And again, our finding wasn't that there is a few bad people. Our finding was the structures, you know, the supports, um, the social conditions of how people are expected to work, the, even the employment arrangements were all really I had challenges in there, the lack of clear standards. And I guess in terms of seeing change, I would say the two things we've talked about, respect at work, that's now fully, pretty much fully implemented, and then the Parliament report, which has had 28 recommendations that are well advanced in implementation. From those two pieces of work, as I come to the end of my term, people tell me that their workplaces are different and better as a result. So it's really a big compliment to the Human Rights Commission and the skills and capability of people here that in a seven-year period, the people here could have in good faith made a difference. And, you know, we talk about different kinds of change and how difficult they are to achieve, right? And legislative change is definitely up there with with Mm. the great challenges. But I think the one step that's harder than that is achieving cultural change. And Mm. what, what the work you've done and the subsequent legal change that's happened has done is not just pushed real legal ramifications for people who behave badly and putting an onus on workplaces, Um, to prevent that happening, but also started a conversation and got us all talking and made employers more aware of of what's expected of them, which is where I think that that real shift is is going to happen. How do you approach wrapping up in a role like this? How do you think about the future and what's next for you after such a big job. I, the last time I felt like this was when Obama retired. I was like, what are you going to do next, <laughs> Obama? And what are you going to do next, Kate Diggins? <laughs> That's a huge compliment. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it is quite the same as Obama. You're like, I'm going to write a bazillion dollar book. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, what you've described is absolutely right. I've really had a lot of thought about what would I do next. It's been so personally and professionally rewarding to be in this role. Um, I have been given such um, amazing trust and opportunities to do really meaningful work, which is why the answer to what I'm going to do next is still unclear, other than I will be going to the Women's World Cup. I am an ambassador for the legacy, getting more women and girls playing sport. You mentioned that already. Until my last day, I will be working really hard because there's a whole lot still that I want to do. And then after that, I'll have a think about it. But 
as and I've done a few, you know, goodbyes and I met with the staff at the commission today for the last time, but there there is now a whole uh, there's three new functions for um, the positive duty from respect at work. There's a new disclosure process. Uh, there's a whole team of people who are doing a whole lot of practical things. So if I look back, I will definitely be supporting, but these changes aren't about me. They're actually changes in our institutions that will live well beyond me. So that's really pleasing. I've got one last question and I'm going to continue to labour my US president's comparisons. <laughs> no, but in all the movies and with my personal acquaintances with the many American presidents, there's a letter that you leave in the top drawer or on the desk for the newcomer, for the person that takes over, oh, and you yes. tell them this is your priorities and this is what I've learned and whatever. Um, we don't know who your successor is going to be yet, but no. uh, what would you say to them? What would your advice be? So I haven't had time to think about what I'd write in the letter, but I did when they were looking at doing the interviews and I know interviews have been done, but I don't think a decision's been made. I'm not involved with the process. So there were two or three things that I said, you should ask or look for these sorts of things. So this is what I would say to them because I'm sort of see if they how they would answer that. The first thing I would say is um, really understand the unique powers and role that this is. Um, because I've done a range of things, but partly because it was squarely the Sex Discrimination Act prohibits sexual harassment. We did a survey. So I would say really understand what this role is because there's lots of amazing people promoting gender equality and doing a whole lot of parts of the the ecosystem. So the first thing is I would say look at what the role is and think really about what your part is in that. Second, I would say, yes, pick up what achievements I've made, but we are not there yet in terms of gender equality. Really take stock at the moment you arrive as to what is the most pressing issue. I have said to some people, I think women's poverty would be the top of my list if I was coming in, but um, I haven't had to do that task. And then the third thing I would say is the Human Rights Commission is a small but mighty organisation. We are not that well-funded. There's seven commissioners, age, sex, race, disability, children's human rights, um, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. And then we have complaints. We do all the other functions. There's only about 100 people here. And so while I know there will be consideration for improving the funding, we're in a moment in time where, you know, the economy is in trouble. And so my third thing would be to say, just be realistic about what you can and can't do, be really selective, be really targeted, uh, but also, you know, don't spend too much time complaining about the fact that you have no resources because, that's just the world we're in right now. So just try and do the best you can. Now, I say that for those pieces of work, like the Parliament Review, we then got additional funding. They were the three things. So whoever's been interviewed will now hear. Um, maybe those questions were asked them, but I did say they were the three things that I would say for this role is super important. And it's taken me seven years, but I think I've got the hang of the role now. Kate Jenkins, thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing and thank you for your incredible work over the last seven years. It's been a very important time in Australian and global history, I think, for starting to reckon with 
how women have been treated in workplaces across the world. And I think we were just so goddamn lucky to have you in the job at that time. Thank you, Jamila. It's always so delightful to talk to you. That's it for my conversation with Kate Jenkins. But don't go away, please, because The Weekend List is coming up next. Welcome back, folks. It is Weekend List time. Helen Smith is here. It's always tricky, everyone. It is tricky coming off the back of an Easter weekend when really your recommendation is probably less chocolate than you had previously. But Helen and I have worked very hard. We've come up with hacks and things to listen to and do and all sorts of stuff. Helen's going to kick us off. Yes. So my first recommendation, I actually got this one from my mum. It was how to keep fresh flowers alive for longer because I love flowers, but you know, when it's my birthday or you have something, you always get flowers and they're my favourite thing, but they die so quickly. So mum gave me this little hack and you put aspirin in the water. So you give it a little Panadol, a little aspirin, a little pep, I guess. I don't know. And it actually worked. Like it keeps your flowers alive for longer. So yeah, that was mine, you know, replace the water as you do, but pop a little aspirin in there and the flowers are happy as. Look, I got a D in year 10 science, so I cannot tell you why that works, but I can attest that it does work. Excellent suggestion, Helen, because flowers are spenno. So if you're buying fresh flowers, you want to you want them to hang around for a bit. I want to recommend a new podcast. It's called But Are You Happy? And it's a new podcast from the Mamma Mia Network, and it's hosted by Claire Stevens. I didn't know a lot about Claire, but what she's done on this sort of podcast investigation series is she's talked to a lot of uh, high profile people and the kind of people that you look at, I suppose, and go, oh yeah, they've got it all. Like they're super successful and life's going well and it's all shiny and happy on social media. Um, And she has asked them the question of, but are you really happy? And she sort of dug into what happiness looks like for them and what they thought life would be like at this stage and perhaps what's going on behind the pretty picture, the pretty veneer that we all see. And in the first episode, she actually gives the hosting mic to someone else. And she is herself this interviewed because she thinks it's important that she gets vulnerable before she asks other people to do the same things. And she talks about uh, being jealous of her best friend and twin sister. And I just found it absolutely fascinating and just a really super interesting like, I don't want to say it, but like slightly pervy kind of kind of listen. Um, it's a really great podcast. Check it out. I actually just listened to that one too, Jam, and I love it. Love it. So that was it. That's a great recommendation. Um, my second one, I, I saw it on TikTok as I do. I'm addicted to TikTok, but the air fryer pancakes, they are so smart and it's just amazing. You just have your little air fryer, pop a bit of baking paper down, put your a bit of pancake batter down another bit of baking paper, the batter, the baking paper, and so on. So it's a stack. A stack of baking paper, the batter, the baking paper, the batter. Pop it in. It's amazing. It actually works. I tried it. I tried it on the weekend. It works. So quick, so easy. If you're trying to like make a big bunch of pancakes for your girlfriends or for your fam, it's it's just such a good hack. Another hack. I love it. Uh, Helen, you are a queen of bringing the hacks and that one, I'm like, mentally clocking for trying tomorrow morning. Uh, that sounds awesome because the worst thing about pancakes is that you like you can never serve them all at once or they start getting cold. So that is genius. Uh, I have 
uh, quite out of uh, sync for me, folks. I have sort of a hack. Well, no, I have an app. I have an app that will hack for you, everybody. Um, I want to recommend an app that's called Forest. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this one. Apparently it's been around for a while, but I had not come across it. And it's basically a way to get yourself to focus. And if you're someone who struggles to focus for a really long period of time or gets distracted or struggles with motivation, particularly a whole bunch of neurodiverse friends, use, use this one. It's almost like it gamifies your tasks. So you can say, I'm going to study for half an hour or I'm going to work on a particular piece of work for 10 minutes or I'm going to file emails for 40 minutes or I don't know, I'm going to clean the kitchen for half an hour. And then after that, I can I can do a fun thing. And you set it on your phone and then you stop it, you know, you stop using your phone because you've got to keep looking at this. And it, it plants a little tree for you and then the tree grows on the screen. And now I feel very childish saying that, but it brings me a lot of joy watching my trees grow. Now I've got a few trees because of my excellent concentration. And because I'm super competitive and gamifying anything works for me, now I just want to grow more trees, which means I have to actually do tasks that are necessary for me. Sounds really silly, but genuinely it is quite motivating, Iran. I think you would find it useful. It's called Forest. Uh, Let me know if you think I'm silly or if you found it really helpful too. That is it for today's weekend briefing. Thank you so much for joining us. We loved having your company. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode of The Briefing or The Weekend Briefing, you should follow us in the Listener app or you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts while you're there. And I haven't asked this for a couple of weeks, folks, so I let you off. I feel like it would be nice to leave us a sneaky five-star review, maybe even a lovely comment. That would be that would be very sweet. Or you could share an episode of The Weekend Briefing with your friends or family that you particularly loved. We will be back with you bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.